0: It's not my way to take your hand if I'm not sure It's not my way to let you see what's going on inside of me When it's a love you won't be needing, you're not free Please stop pulling at my sleeve if you're just playing If you won't take the things you make me want to give Never cared too much for games, and this one's driving me insane. You're not half as brave to wander as you claim. But I'm easy, yeah, I'm easy. Give the word, I'll play your game. so that's how it ought to be, because I. Hello again and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And before we get into uh, our first Robert Altman film, and that would be Nashville, we are going to bring you, as we always do, some weekly recommendations. And as we continue to be in quarantine, boy, do we ever need uh, additional things to watch. So Ian, what do you have for us this week?
1: Well, I wanted to pair this with another Altman movie. I just found myself not having the time and I was going to rewatch Gosford Park because I haven't seen it since it came out in theaters. I went and saw that. I must have been, I don't know, like 14 when it came out. And it's another one of those movies that I just wasn't far enough along in my cinematic journey to really appreciate and wasn't sort of emotionally mature enough to to deal with some of the themes and and, uh, some of Altman's tropes. So uh, instead of re-watching Gosford Park, much to my chagrin, I ended up uh, re-watching a movie that is uh, very, very familiar to me. Something that I would call almost a comfort movie at this point, and that would be Michael Winterbottom's 24-Hour Party People. Um, I, I chose that to go along with Nashville because I wanted something that was sort of thematically similar. It's about a time and a place and a music scene and, uh, you know, intersecting lives and, and stories. Uh, so you've got a, a pretty big British ensemble cast. We've got Steve Coogan, uh, Rob Broiden, uh Simon Pegg in a very small role. We've got Sean Harris, who a lot of people now will know as the bad guy in the last two Mission Impossible movies. Uh, we've got a, a favorite of mine, Paddy Considine. And uh, Andy Serkis uh, steals the fucking show. He is just excellent in every scene that he's in. He plays a very famous music producer in Britain called Martin Hannett. Um, So Steve Coogan uh, plays Tony Wilson. He uh, is famous for having set up a company called Factory Records, and they produced a lot of sort of post-punk, early new wave types of bands. They're very famous for having uh, Joy Division and New Order and DeRudy Column. uh, Maybe bands that not everybody knows but bands that I grew up with in this film was really a, a portal into that world for me so it really helped expand my musical horizons as well as my film horizons. I'm a big Michael Winterbottom fan now and love the trip movies that he does with with Coogan and Broiden. Um but this movie is just as I said it's a comfort movie it, it transports me even though I wasn't alive in the 70s and early 80s but it, it really transports me to a time and a place and uh, music is just incredible It's it's the film where I really fell in love with Joy Division, and they're very famous for the song Love Will Tear Us Apart, and their um, their lead singer, Ian Curtis, who unfortunately killed himself at a very young age, the age of 23. In fact, I've mentioned him on this podcast before during our our Werner Herzog episode, because the, the last film that he saw was uh, Strozak before he killed himself, which is not the last film that I would choose to go out on, but, you know, I guess beggars can't be choosers, Um <laughs> <laughs> anyway i I absolutely am in love with this film. It's one of those movies that anybody who's given me ninety minutes of their time i've i've shown them it um i just i i don't know I don't know what else to say about it. It just really it's a movie that that
0: that gets me well that's that's great i i i can i think um like you recommend i think last week when you mentioned um this is England this is a film I have heard of uh but have not seen so i don't i wish I had more to contribute. Um, other than I hope to get to it at some point. Well, I can I can understand it not playing
1: huge in in, uh, in the in the states in the same way that I imagine Nashville wasn't huge overseas because that it very much is an American story just in the same way Twenty Four Hour People Party People is uh, it's a very British story. Sure, sure, awesome. Do you know if that's is that streaming anywhere or is it or just available I, to rent or? I, I don't believe so. I believe that Amazon uh, might have it on on Prime. You can rent that for three or four bucks. Okay. But I don't okay. I don't believe I've ever seen it on any of the streaming platforms. It it did recently get a Blu-ray release finally here in the states though.
0: Okay, great, great. Um, well, uh, my recommend. Uh, Ian so so wonderfully talked about wanting to rewatch Gosford Park, and and I did, and um, I definitely want to uh, piggyback on what. Ian had said about not being necessarily emotionally mature enough in our uh, our, our film history endeavors in which we are um, sort of embarking on uh, every week as we continue through this podcast. Um, and and not only that, but I, you know, I Gosford Park already was sort of um, it, it was it was it was not very uh, well received in my eyes uh, for for one big reason, and and that being that. It won Best Original Screenplay in 2001. Now, um, whether I mentioned it on the pod or not, Best Original Screenplay is my actual favorite category at the Oscars. Um, not just because it's Pulp Fiction that won that, but some of my favorite films of all time have won that. And I thought that was a pretty stacked year for Best Original Screenplay nominees. You have, um, and I'll go, I'll go in reverse order of my favorite. You have Monsters Ball, which at the time I still preferred over Gosford Park. Um, Amelie. Royal Tenenbaums and Memento. Um, those last two are end all be all favorites of mine. I, I love the Royal Tenenbaums and I love Memento. And so when Gosh Straight Gospel off Park...
1: straight off the bat, I'm gonna say it should have been Royal Tenenbaums. Sorry to interrupt
0: you there. Oh no, you're fine. And I and I probably would, would still give it to Memento, but at, at at that time I'd actually seen um three of the nominees. I hadn't seen Amelie yet, but I had seen Monsters Ball and um well, of bombs and Memento and so when Gosford Park won to say that I was bummed I think was an understatement and so I it didn't even matter how good it was at the time when I saw it at the at the at the ripe old age of 14 I just it didn't I didn't get why it was important I didn't get why it was good I didn't think it was nearly as ingenious as some of the other films and while I still don't think it is as good as some of the films in that category um I rewatched it a couple of years ago and um, I I finally was able to kind of get past the petty, you know, Oh my God, I can't believe this one. And I really saw it for what it was, which is a really great, um, you know, upstairs, downstairs tale of, um, of what it means to trust and, and, you know, what does it mean to, 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 you know, say what we say behind closed doors and how do we present ourselves in public? And um, I think what really got me back into wanting to watch it was that, Melissa and I, I don't think we finished it, but we definitely were Downton Abbey fans. Um, and so when I realized that it was the same writer of Downton Abbey as it was for Gossip Park, Julian Fellows, it made me a bit more interested. And, you know, watching it again last night, it is, it is great to see all of the storylines and the connections and just like the glimpses of passing... Phrases and and relationships that we see, um, and the, I mean, and as we'll talk about, like on today's episode, I mean, I'm looking at the IMDb right now, and I'm not going to read every name, but I mean, Maggie Smith, Michael Gambin, Kristen Scott, Thomas, Charles Dance, Tom Hollander, Bob Balaban, uh, Ryan Phillippe, Stephen Fry, Kelly McDonald, Clive Owen, Helen Mirren, Eileen Atkins, Emily Watson, Derek Jacobi, E. Grant. I, I I mean, Jesus Christ. Man, I was gonna call you on it if you didn't. If you didn't call out Richard E. Grant. Oh no, Richard Richard E. Grant is great. I mean, and that's the thing is, and I didn't read all the names, mostly because I I don't know necessarily a lot of these other people outside of the movie. But that I'm, I'm probably doing a disservice to some of the other really great performances in it. They're just names I'm not familiar with, right? Um. There's something about the setting and the story and um. It actually has some great. Uh, I think there's a lot of thematic things that that comes across really well, and I, I, while it will never it will never rise above Royal Tenenbaums and Memento, which again are are just personal favorites of mine. Um, Gosford Park is is really worth a watch, um, and if you like if you liked Downton Abbey, I would definitely suggest it. Um, and you'll you'll see kind of like what maybe like the ultimate episode of Downton Abbey would be with like a master director, uh, because uh, Altman's use of of his the camera and the editing throughout is is really great. And so uh, Gossip Park, an absolute. Oh, and it's it's and, and since you turned me on to Arrow, that I I found this I found the Blu Ray I picked this up. It was they released that on the the U.S. version, so um, I watched that last night. And very much enjoyed it. How was the uh, you know me in picture quality? How was the transfer on the Arrow Blu-ray? It was good. It was great. Yeah, it looked it looked great on 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 the 4K, uh, and I I very much enjoyed and and you know I feel like I feel like two movies can look really great on a 4K. I mean lots can, but um, like action-y, sci-fi kind of stuff or like like period piece detail movies, and I I I, I just think Gossip Park really shined on 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 that on the 4K last night. I gotta say.
1: Well, I I'm and I'm head over heels in love with Arrow and I'm glad that you've been turned on to them recently as well cuz I really feel like they're gunning for Criterion's position as the end all be all of home video releases. They're really well, uh they're really making great strides to to keep up with Criterion as far as not just supplemental packages but restorations as well.
0: Yeah, I I mean I I finally I got a region-free player uh almost primarily because I got the the vengeance trilogy and um uh, Children of Men has an Arrow UK yeah. release. Okay, so there you go. Yeah, great, great. So Twenty Four Hour Party People and um, Gossip Park. Those are our recommendations this week. Um, and so now we we circle back to uh, the film of discussion today, and that would be uh, Robert Altman's 1975 film Nashville. Um, it was written by uh, Joan Tewksbury, who he had worked with previously before. She was kind of the script supervisor on MASH, and I think maybe California Suite. Um, and, uh, McCabe uh, and Mrs. Miller as well. Thank you. Yep, I knew there was probably one more I was going to forget. Um, okay, so uh, the, uh, th- this cast is, is huge. Um, luckily, what I pulled from online kind of put them alphabetically. So I am just going to quickly say who was in it. And who they played. I'm not going to say, like, explain the character. Because as we go through this very long character-filled movie, we will, I'm sure we will go into many, if not all of them. So, here we go. David Arkin plays Norman. Barbara Baxley plays Lady Pearl. Ned Beatty plays Del Reese. Karen Black plays Connie White. Ronnie Blakely as Barbara Jean. Timothy Brown as Tommy Brown. Keith Carradine as Tom Frank, Geraldine Chaplin as Opal, Robert DeQuay as Wade, Shelley Duvall as Martha, Alan Garfield as Barnett, Henry Gibson as Haven Hamilton, Scott Glenn as PFC Glenn Kelly, Jeff Goldblum as as listed here Silent Tricycle Man, (laughs) Barbara Harris as Winifred or Albuquerque. Uh, David Hayward as Kenny Frazier, Michael Murphy as John Triplett, Alan F. Nichols as Bill, Dave Peel as Bud Hamilton, <sighs> Christina Rains as Mary, Burt Remsen as Star, uh, Lily Tomlin as Linnea Reese, Gwen Wells as Suline Gay, Keenan Wynn as Mr. Green, and Thomas Howe Phillips, who plays the voice of of how Philip Walker. Oh Jesus Christ. Is there anybody else that you, I, I I don't that's a lot. That's most of them, right? Did I get all of them? And Elliot Gould and Julie Christie appears themselves. Okay, which I'm going to say right now is so fucking stupid. I I actually really hate that they're in the movie at all. And I I don't like that they were just visiting him on set and he was like, "Hey, I'm going to put you in the movie for no fucking reason." I didn't like it. But he, he does he does have a reason. We'll we'll pick it apart when we get to it. Sure. Yeah. Whatever you say. Um, Robert Altman has other films in the book, uh, and they are MASH from 1970, McCabe and Mrs. Miller in 1971, The Long Good Friday 1973, The Player 1992, and Shortcuts uh, from 1993. Um, what a year for the Academy Award best picture nominees nominated that year we had nashville jaws barry linden dog day afternoon and what ultimately ended up winning and doing the big five one flew over the cuckoo's nest that is a stacked fucking year i don't know i wouldn't even begin
1: to rank those i just i couldn't choose oh
0: really because I, I could i could i could like real easy <laughs> Oh, go ahead. Just prattle it off, man. Go for. Oh, it. Oh, oh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Dog day afternoon. Barry Lyndon. Jaws. Nashville. All right. <laughs> well, that that was easy. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that that was for me. Um, See,
1: I'm just I'm I'm too much in love with honestly all five of them to be able to to it would take it would take some time it would take some real soul searching to uh, to rank those. Boy, I, think, not... I think, honestly, the best of them, though, is probably Barry Lyndon. If I'm looking I... at just, like, a f- quality film, like the film that I think maybe should have taken it, but I, I don't know, man. Then I think about Dog Day Afternoon, and I think about how much I love Jaws. I don't necessarily think that Jaws should have won Best Picture, but it is it is a movie that it's, in retrospect, it's the birth of the blockbuster. I mean, its place in history oh, is sure. un- unrefutable.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, can't can't argue that. Um So uh, the uh, Academy Award nominations for Nashville, uh, Best Picture, Best Director, two Supporting Actress nominations for Lily Tomlin and Ronnie Blakely, um, and Best Song. Now, it won Best Song for um, I'm Easy. Uh, It lost Picture and Director to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and um, both Lily Tomlin and Ronnie Blakely lost to Lee Grant, who was in Shampoo. Now, that's a Hal Ashby film. Have you seen Shampoo? I have not, but while we're talking about Hal
1: Ashby, I did just, a couple nights ago, watch The Last Detail for the first time, and fuck me, what a movie. Yeah. Last Detail is now one of my favorite films of all time. No,
0: wow, great. Loved it. I, Nicholson is on fire in that movie. I definitely had a strong reaction to um, Coming Home, which we wasn't an episode, but I definitely watched in conjunction with... Um, Apocalypse Now and sort of related it back to The Deer Hunter. So yeah, yeah, great. I, I think Hal Ashby is becoming one of my one of my favorites who kind of, you know, maybe may a bit of an Icarus thing with, with Hal Ashby because he, he kind of crashed and burned after. Uh, oh man, I, he
1: he definitely was, re- that's a great metaphor, man. He was really reaching for the sun with a lot of his films.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true.
1: I'm, um, I'm still very hesitant to get to Harold and Maude though.
0: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, n- not quite yet. P- probably be a while before we get back to Hal Ashby. Um, at the Golden Globes, uh, it was also up for Best Picture Director, uh, Supporting Actor um, for Henry Gibson, and then three Supporting Actress um, uh, nominations for Lily Tomlin, Ronnie Blakely, and Geraldine Chaplin. Um, uh, also uh, nominated for Best Screenplay, Best Acting Debut for Lily Tomlin and Ronnie Blakely, and again, one Best Song. Oh, geez. Uh, There's so many things. Um, The BAFTAs was up
1: for... The the Globes, it's still got the record for the most nominations for any film, 11 nominations.
0: Hot damn. Well, and they got rid of that acting debut category, which I think think it'll probably hold that record for the rest of time. (laughs) Um, At the BAFTAs, it was up for Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress, uh, but this time it was uh, for uh, Ronnie Blakely, and Gwen Wells as Sulene, um, best promising newcomer for Lily Tomlin. It won best soundtrack. Um, it picked up DGA and WGA nominations. Hey, our friends at the Kansas City Film Critics Circle, it won best film, supporting actress for Lily Tomlin and director. Hot damn! I think the, I think the people of Kansas City enjoyed that movie. Wouldn't you say so? <laughs> Uh, they they
1: might be the only ones in that neck of the woods. It sounds like the uh the deep south and the country music industry was not very impressed with this film.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely come back to that. Um the National Board of Review it it won best film. It tied with Barry Lyndon. It also won best director, best supporting actress for Ronnie Blakely. Hey Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? It was indeed
1: in 1992. Interesting year. Some other films that were inducted in 92, Double Indemnity, Pass of Glory, Psycho, Annie Hall, and Birth of a Nation.
0: Motherfucker. Oh. Yeah, Do we still yeah. need it? Yes. Do we still Let's need induct- it? Is it still yes. important? Let's induct the fucking Birth of a Nation into our national film registry. Awesome. Great idea. Yeah, fucking it really idiots. sets a good example. Um, sorry. Um, And the last thing I have in our little accolade section is that um, it is currently number 59 on the AFI's top 100 films. Um, It was not on the original list, so it it burst on in 2007 at number 59. Um, Do you have any other accolades? Well, I'm Easy is also on the AFI's
1: list of best songs at number 81. And then uh, it lost a Grammy to uh,
0: the soundtrack to Jaws by John Williams. Well, there you have it there. You haven't. Um, this film is not currently on the IMDb top two fifty. It has a ninety-one percent critical and an eighty-four percent audience score. Um, do you have any critical things you'd like to read from this? I've got.
1: Uh, I've got a little piece from uh, Roger Ebert, his four-star review. Robert, Alt- Robert Altman's Nashville. Which was the best American movie since Bonnie and Clyde creates in the relationships of nearly two dozen characters a microcosm of who we were and what we were up to in the 1970s. It's a film about the losers and the winners, the drifters and the stars in Nashville, and the most complete expression yet of not only the genius but also the humanity of Altman, who sees people with his camera in such a way as to enlarge our own experience. Sure, it's only a movie, but after I saw it, I felt more alive. I felt I understood more about people. I felt somehow wiser.
0: It's that good a movie. Um, so I, I was going to read um, Ebert's Great Movies review, but then I got I got really curious because he opens up referencing Pauline Kale's review, um, who apparently spoke very, very highly of it. Now, I've been able to find a couple of Pauline Kale's reviews, but apparently this one is if, if you do not have a New Yorker subscription, you cannot get it. However. I, I looked at I looked at that too. However, my coworker, and I'm gonna give her a shout out because she listens to our podcast as well, Kelly Sweet, was gracious enough to use her New Yorker subscription and forward me Pauline Kale's original glowing, very long review. I'm gonna read the first paragraph. Is there such a thing as an orgy for movie lovers, but an orgy without excess? At Robert Altman's new, almost three-hour film, Nashville, you don't get drunk on images. You're not overpowered. You get elated. I've never before seen a movie I loved in quite this way. I sat there smiling at the screen in complete happiness. It's a pure emotional high, and you don't come down when the picture is over. You take it with you. In most cases, the studio heads can conjecture an insurance policy. They can't with Altman. And after United Artists withdrew its backing from Nashville, the picture had to be produced independently because none of the other major companies would take it on. UA's decision will probably rack up as a classic boner because this picture is going to take off into the stratosphere, though it first has got to open. Paramount picked up the distribution rights but hasn't yet announced an opening date. She ends her first paragraph by saying Nashville is a radical evolutionary leap. I mean and, her review, and I think she's right on. Man, her review, uh, it it goes on to say a a lot more. Um, it there's there's not we could do a whole podcast on just <laughs> on just her review of the movie. Um, so okay, so there is such there is so much to talk about. I don't know how to progress through the movie. I'd like to start off by saying, and at least because I think it'll it'll great, create some nice fun and back and forth stuff. Um, Roger Ebert's review and Pauline Kael's review, I disagree with.
1: Oh boy, here we go. This is going to be uh, it's going to be another uh, Deer Hunter, High Plains here- Drifter, Apocalypse Now situation, isn't it? Here we go. Here we go. All right, let's let's do this thing, man. I'm putting on the boxing gloves. All right, I'm ready to spar with you, man. But Speaking of we boxing move, gloves,
0: we also disagreed on Raging Bull. Um, we did,
1: indeed. Before we progress into to plot and move too far away from stats, if it's all right with you, I just want to take a moment to talk about uh, some of the cast members that aren't with us anymore. Now, there's a lot of of people that were in this film that are, aren't with us anymore, including Henry Gibson... Um, Gene Gwen Wells, who unfortunately died very young of cancer at the age of 42 in 1993, and a handful of people that don't work anymore either, like Shelley Duvall, who hasn't made a film uh, since 2002. But uh, there's two people really in particular that we should call out. Timothy Brown uh, died very recently, April the 4th of this year. Uh, he died of dementia. He hadn't worked in a while either, so I, I don't know how long he was, he had this affliction. His last film was actually Frequency with uh, Jim Caviezel and Dennis Quaid in 2000. Uh, but the other big one as well, Alan Garfield um, still being in the throes of COVID-19. This is uh, one that really hits home and, and uh, I say my condolences to his family. He did die April the 7th of this year at the age of 80 uh, from
0: COVID-19. Yeah, I did. I I I wasn't aware of that and that that's I mean, you know, it's it's very much unfortunate and I mean, I know that what we're hearing is that obviously it's it's afflicting, you know, the elderly and the and the uh those who already have pre-existing conditions, but that's that is I didn't I didn't know that and thank you for bringing that up and definitely sending our thoughts out to his his friends and family.
1: Yeah, it was uh he was a uh a hell of an actor man i mean i it took me a second but i did recognize him finally from stuff like uh ninth gates the conversation and he was actually in beverly hills cop 2 which is one of my guilty <laughs> pleasures i am i say, am a fan of the beverly hills cop series did you say the ninth gate yeah he's got a small role in the ninth gate you remember that polanski film with uh with johnny depp that's I, a I, that's a fucking weird one man i, I mean i dig it but it's a weird one I,
0: I can't decide if that movie is good or bad. I really don't know. That's, that's the kind of movie The Ninth Gate is.
1: And I don't know, I don't know what its Rotten Tomato score is either.
0: Otherwise, I'd pitch it for uh, Below oh Freezing. God. I'm sure it's got to be above 32, though. <laughs> it probably is. Um, okay, so I, I, I really do, though. I don't, I don't know how to, to get into this movie. Well, I think we should. Uh, I think we should
1: just try and go not necessarily beat for beat, because obviously we'd be here all day. But to try and maybe progress through the plot um, to, as chronologically as we can would probably okay. be helpful. So, if anybody's I- not familiar with the plot, I mean it's pretty basic. It's five days in Nashville. All these twenty-four. I mean, I wouldn't call them all lead characters, but some of them are definitely more important than others. Uh, you watch their sort of worlds collide, their ambitions rise and fall. Uh, ultimately ending in a very very tragic ending that's the the sort of five cent review or five yeah. cent the uh, uh, plot synopsis rather
0: um can we can we really say that this movie has a plot though I think it does in a sort of abstract way it has themes but I mean can we can we do we I, I mean I, that this movie to me does not have a plot now that does that in and of itself, doesn't make it a a not entertaining movie in my eyes but the lack of a plot doesn't help
1: <laughs> well there are there are several character arcs which sure. i think could make up as i said something of an abstract plot yeah yeah so let's let's start with some some negativity right off the bat why are you going negative on this movie
0: um there are there there are a couple of reasons um the the first one is that in a movie and and it's so funny because I I remember one of my and I want I want to circle back to Gosford Park just just for a second just to kind of get get to get in an Altman state of mind and and I so here's what I'll say too I in terms of Altman films I have seen this now I have seen Gosford Park I have seen the player and I have seen shortcuts. Those are the Altman films that I have seen. So
1: I, you haven't you haven't seen, I would say more of the earlier output. You haven't seen *Mash*, *McCabe and Mrs. Miller*, *Long Good Friday*. I'm oh, sorry, not *Long*. Sorry, *Long Goodbye*. Yes. Um, *McCabe and Mrs. Miller* that's one that was a tough one for me. I do need to revisit that. If you think that this doesn't have a plot, I feel like *McCabe and Mrs. Miller* had even less of a plot. So I don't know that that one's going to necessarily grab you. Well,
0: but. But here's any, but here's my thing too. And and this is what I kind of my, my one of my initial fourteen year old reactions to Gosford Park was that there were too many characters and I don't I don't really I don't really think that I care enough about any of them. Like I, I get that a lot of them don't like Michael Gambin, but then like they all it's like well then I I don't know that I like them because they don't really care that he died. So then like I don't care about him, but I don't care about them for not liking him. And and now now again Having rewatched it and and let letting some of those deeper um, kind of character motivations come through, I, I get now what's happening and I I see the connections and I I see what's going on. Um, I've always loved the player. I I I've always found that to be an entertaining movie, and I think why I I like the player the most of any Altman film is that I can it it kind of always comes back to. Tim Robbins. There is, even though there's lots of characters who sprinkle around him, I've got my, kind of my guiding, my, my guiding light through through the movie. I, I, I equate Nashville a lot to like shortcuts, which I don't like. And I haven't seen it since I first saw it. I've only seen it once. But that is a long movie about a lot of characters that I just, I don't, I don't care about, but I also don't know enough about. And I get, the, the slice of life Americana look you know some of the people who have made it and the people who are trying and then the people who just aren't you know just haven't made it. and that I, that's all fine to me. I like a I do like a big movie with a lot of characters and and things that weave in and out. I mean I mean I mean I've we've both raved about Magnolia on this movie before. so a big sprawling cast is is fine with me. I just there's no there's no drive. I I, I just don't I don't understand why I, we're following anybody through this movie. So I'll uh, I'll I'll take your side for a
1: moment, and I will I will agree. So this was a first watch for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this first watch, I will say that it took it, the movie is two hours and forty minutes, almost on the nose. Yes. It did take me about 90 minutes to start gelling with it. I, I will say that. It took me damn near half the length, or a little over half the length, to really start to come to terms with just how many people were in it, uh, Altman's use of the overlapping dialogue, and Liz was watching it with me, and she actually she stopped watching it with me at about that point, because she, she does have ADHD, and, and she says, you know, Altman's movies are just like everyday life for her. It's, it's hard for her to see this film as as escapism because this is just how she lives and going out in the world and just dealing with that much sort of sound it's it can be uh, it can be a little difficult to find focus she's like no, no no this is this is too much just how it's like to be inside my head uh so i i i, I get it from that point of view and i also get that it might be a little hard to, to identify with anybody when we're just kind of dropped into this world. I kind of almost liken it to an Aaron Sorkin script, like something like The Social Network where we're just dropped into that bar scene and we are kind of forced to play catch-up and, and to sort of try and come to terms with who these people are on the fly. But another thing that also gives it a slight disadvantage in the, the 2020 world that we live in is that you know, we didn't live through Vietnam, through Watergate... Through the assassinations of people like JFK and Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King, and this film is sort of not preoccupied with a lot of that, but it does, you know, weave in and out of the the fabric of the, you know, what little story that there is. So I, I'll I'll take that stance with you and say, yeah, I can I can understand definitely how it's a little hard to find find your footing and
0: find reasons to care. Yeah, and. I'm you know and I'm glad that you brought up the wh- where the country was Watergate and Vietnam and and you know the upcoming bicentennial which I mean I it was still a year away but I you know to to have lived through that was like I know that and that and that's that's kind of on the good side of things too but just like where we were at that point as a country you're right we 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 don't know that and and I don't I don't have a problem with the fact that it's dated in that way. Cause this is clearly a 1975 film. I mean, what they're talking about and what they're wearing and their points of view, it's all 1975 and that's great. I don't, I have no problem with, with how set in its time it is. That, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, honestly, most of my, my issues are with the, the, the storytelling and, you know, I, I I one of the documentaries or one of the, you know, behind the scenes things I was listening to and watching was just they mentioned how much of the movie was was music and I get that it's an important part of of the scene and that we're we're in Nashville and we're talking about country music. But Jesus Christ, I don't I don't think we needed nearly as much of that. I mean, this movie this movie is unnecessarily long. I,
1: I could agree with that i could agree that i would would trim things now on a on a first- time viewing i couldn't say necessarily what those are but i also kind of suspect that very much like the deer hunter i'll go to watch this a second time with the mindset of okay what could i lose and find myself getting more and more attached to things and saying no i don't i don't know that i would lose things so that's just me just just playing devil's advocate and 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 guessing but from the outset yeah i don't I I know that it could be shorter, but I just don't know what I would take out.
0: I, well, okay, I I have an idea. How about um, uh, uh, I'm gonna do character names, so we have this. How about Tommy Brown and Haven Hamilton and give me a second. Um, Connie White all lose at least one song from the Grand Ole Opry, because we don't need that. That's that's fair. Let's let's cut out. Um, Everything to do with uh, Julie Christie and Elliot Gould, because it is not important to the movie.
1: Now, see, so yeah, that's that's where I'm going to disagree with you, because this film does have, again, not a preoccupation with it, but this film does have a lot to say about celebrity and obsession and hero worship. And so I think it it really grounds the film to have real celebrities, people that that a general audience would know at the time to glom onto and go, oh my god, there's, there's Elliot Gould, and oh my god, there's Julie Christie, and to watch the way that these fictional characters sort of glom onto them. And, and I, I love the interaction between Elliot Gould, Haven Hamilton, and uh, the, the Opal character, the BBC, Uh, journalist that's there for uh, the long weekend and the way that she is is butting into the conversation and she she can't believe oh my god it's Elliot Gould that's here that to me there's a really heartbreaking moment just before that scene she's talking to Bud Hamilton who is uh, Haven's son (laughs) And and he's talking about with a slight sort of air of melancholy you know he he maybe had aspirations to be a singer, maybe had aspirations to follow in his father's footstep, and, and he can sing, but he's become something of the, the business side of the family and the business side of the industry, and she kind of prods him and pokes him a little bit and gets him to sing, and he's doing his thing, and it's a, it's a lovely little song that he's singing, and then she sees Elliot Gould, and Bud Hamilton is nothing to her, and she rushes over and and starts interrupting the conversation that he's having with with Haven Hamilton there's just there's something I I really enjoy about that scene. Maybe you could argue that the Julie Christie one doesn't need to be there, but I really like the Elliot Gould one.
0: I just feel like it, it's because well and I, I don't know how to phrase this and because there's obviously there's this whole thing going on with this presidential campaign and um, and like this, I guess, you know, the, that Keith Carradine's band is kind of a kind of country, but they seem a little more, they seem a little more, rock isn't the right word, but they're not, they don't seem quite country to me, but because it's called Nashville and because, you know, we go to the Grand Ole Opry and because we're doing like very traditional, not quite religious, but almost religious-esque country music. Like, I'm just surprised that there wasn't, they didn't, the, the, the thing that, that, It's Elliot Gould and not like a country star, whoever that is. Like, like why is it, does it have to be some random movie star from the time? And I get that Altman was, was kind of fun like that on the set. And just would be like, cool, I'm going to put you in this scene and we'll just kind of devise, you know, and I get, and I mean, that scene is indicative of, of Altman's kind of like, okay, well because that cabin was where him and his wife were staying during the shoot. That is where the cast would get together literally when they weren't shooting. And so Elliot Gould comes to to set to, to see Altman and, and people, "Oh hey, well, we're here. We're just gonna, we're going to get you in." And it's like, "I don't have I don't have a problem with the the spontaneity and just the kind of excitement of doing that. My bigger issue is just I I don't think there's enough of a reason for it." And um so yeah. Well, but think I definitely... a, think
1: about it in in terms of of some of the other characters, the uh, uh, the the Gwen Wells, the Suleen character. So right when, yeah, right when we meet her, uh, she's she's doing her little song for Jeff Goldblum in the cafe. She's got these aspirations. She's obviously very much uh, a huge fan of somebody like Barbara Jean and really sees herself as becoming the next Barbara Jean, uh, to the point where much, much later we're jumping way, way ahead here. But I, I I mean I I love how they set her up and how heartbreaking her story becomes. I love the scene where she's practicing in uh in the mirror and she's stuffing her bra and uh then when she finally does get the opportunity to sing in front of people, it goes so horribly, horribly wrong and she ends up doing a strip tease instead in order to to so to, to make sure that she's gonna get in with these people and be allowed to sing the next day at the political rally at the Parthenon. And to me what that scene talks about, and I'll I'll loop back around to Elliot Gould, um, it's it's about just how much the obsession with celebrity and the idea that you can be this famous, uh can ultimately be your downfall and that it can, you know, when ambition goes so wrong like that, how it can be Degrading. So I like the idea of having a huge star in the film juxtaposed with somebody who who has, you know, this hero worship of celebrity who doesn't realize that she'll never make it. But she she goes so far as to degrade herself with that sort of self-delusion. I mean, I think there I think I think there's there's sort
0: of the, the A and B side of each other. I I understand that. And I, maybe I would feel differently, but the the character that Sue Lean is is worshiping is in the movie. Barbara Jean is a character in the movie, and so. We, but she's a fiction, she's a fictional character. No, whereas get, Elliot Elliot Gould
1: is a is a real person at the time. I don't know that we think of him necessarily now in this way, but he was one of the the, the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time, and so it's a. And again, this this comes back to the disadvantage of us watching the film 45 years later. Somebody sees Elliot Gould in the film and goes, oh my god, that's Elliot Gould. And so now they're having, perhaps, that reaction to seeing a real-life celebrity in amongst all these fictional ones. Again, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. Well, well I, I, I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not
0: saying you're wrong. Well, no. I mean, you, you can play devil's advocate, but I also... I mean, but it... it... I just I guess I just have a problem with the blending of, of of real movie stars from the time with fictional characters in the movie. Um in a in a plot where if we're talk if we're gonna talk about the, the hero worshiping going on, it's happening in the movie actively. I don't think we need Elliot Gould or Julie Christie to show up. Um and, and it kind of goes kind of harkens back to a lot of the stuff that I, I I heard in the documentary about the movie that just also kind of also leaves a taste in my mouth that I'm not too, too pleased with which is you know Joan Tewksbury writes the script goes to Nashville you know like basically she tries to write it around essentially what she did you know that there was a there was a big pile up on the highway and and she she did go to a recording studio and that's great I think that's all that's all fantastic but like when I apparently like what what I heard and maybe you heard this too is there was no there was no death at the end of the script and then Robert Altman wanted wanted her to die and, and then Tewksbury was like, okay, well, if you want that, then I'm going to make it uh, uh, the nicest guy in the script so that the audience doesn't see it coming. And to me, that's the kind of shit that I, I really don't like because it uh, there there seems to be no artistic purpose for the death or, or picking who did it. It seemed to be more like, oh, I want a death in this movie. Oh, okay, well, then it's going to be him. okay I mean it's like it's like making a decision and then justifying it later but to hear it from from Joan Tewksbury was like well I don't like I, I don't appreciate that at all like give me give me the artistic reason as to why you did it and if it has to be because of a budgetary thing or because you know, you were going to lose somebody on a certain day, that's one thing. But to basically just say, oh, Altman said this, so then I said this, and then we basically come to an agreement. It just, it's the kind of, like, decisions that were made that I don't think were given an extra thought. And and, Sorry, I want to get past this, this particular thing, but to me that harkens back to the Julie Christie and Elliot Gould thing, which was like, oh, hey, you're here, be in the movie. And it's like nobody questioned altman because apparently you don't question altman on the set and not to say that he was tyrannical because again for all intents and purposes he was a very fun sardonic guy on set and and really let actors try what they wanted to but at some point you gotta rein in choices you've got to decide you know what elliot gould i love you you are just in a couple of movies that i did but i don't think i need you in this one today
1: so sticking with the assassination 'Cause I don't sure. I, I don't think we're gonna I don't think we're gonna sway each other one way or the other when it comes to <laughs> the agree. idea of, of celebrities <laughs> being in it. And of course I, I don't I don't think you're wrong. I think maybe and correct me if I'm wrong here, but maybe you're driving at well, if you're gonna have celebrities, why not have um sort of more relevant celebrities, why not have people from the country music industry in the film? And I, again, I think that comes around to something that we mentioned earlier of the, the country music industry not being too satisfied with this film. And it sounds like a lot of that had to do with, well, they're not using our songs. You know, They're having the actors write their own, which I really appreciate that. I think that's a great exercise so that they I, are I, speaking, they're, they're singing and speaking in their own voices. I agree. I appreciate that as well. So sticking with the assassination, I, I think it is entirely justified, especially because of where the country was at the time. As I mentioned, uh, you had the deaths of people like Bobby Kennedy, you had the deaths of JFK, Martin Luther King, um, Malcolm X, even not long before this had happened, I, and I think actually during the filming of the movie, Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother was assassinated as well. So assassination is very much... Another thing, again, I won't say it's preoccupied because there's so much going on in this film, uh, unlike something like Cries and Whispers, where we talked about the film's preoccupation with death. But this film woven into the fabric of it, we have this scene with um, Lady Pearl talking to Opal about, you know just how distraught she is even you know, 12 years after the fact, 12 years after uh, Kennedy has been assassinated and how heartbreaking that was for me. That is the beginning of the disenfranchisement of this country. And I don't think this country ever really recovered from the assassination of Kennedy. So I think it's very important that this film ends on such a tragic moment. And let's just deal with the end right now, seeing as though we're there. The end of this film, for me, is such a microcosm, as the word that Ebert used in his review. It is a microcosm of this country. I think that assassination scene is one of the most important scenes as a whole that I've ever seen in an American film. I I love the the randomness of the acts of violence. I love that we don't really know why she's killed. We don't know really anything about the the Kenny character, other than he's in from out of town. He sounds like he might have something of an overbearing mother who is actually June Joan Tewksbury doing a, a voice cameo. But... What's so important to me about that scene is is two or three things. So first one being that we have the Sue Lean character and she thinks that this moment at the Parthenon is going to be her big break. You know, she's going to get to sing in front of all these people. She's going to get to share the stage, even if it's at one remove with stars like Haven Hamilton and Barbara Jean. And at that moment where Haven Hamilton... Who has been shot as well screams they can't do this to us this isn't Dallas this is Nashville somebody sing something it's not Suleen that gets to step in even though you know we've been following her ambition and her wants to to rise to that level of celebrity throughout the film but it's actually Winifred or Albuquerque who very quickly grabs the mic who we haven't spent as much time on in this film and so Suleen's moment the moment that this film I think has been building to has been robbed of her Which I I think is is just this very, very dark irony. And perhaps she'll never sing again now because of this. As you you watch the crowd, she's there in the background, you know, all by herself, looking very distraught. The other thing that is, is much more important is the crowd. Watch the crowd during this scene and watch the myriad of emotions on their face, the people who have seen Barbara Jean, we assume just killed. We don't know if she's actually dead or not, but I think it's safe to assume that she is. Uh, you know, there are people that are, are are crying, people that are upset and distraught. But then as as uh, Winifred starts singing this song, you know, they may say that I ain't free, but it don't worry me, which again is a great piece of poetry uh, especially in the times that we're living in, just how easily people forget just how free they really aren't, you you see the crowd start to turn and some of them start to, to go with the song. Okay, yeah, we just saw somebody gunned down and murdered, but it don't worry me. And they all start to, you just watch half of the crowd is caught up in the emotion of it of the assassination. And then the other half of the crowd is caught up in the emotion of, of the song and feeling free and patriotic and, and, and whatever else. I don't know. It's just, it just, it really, and this may be because I'm not from this country. I don't know. Uh, but it, it just felt like, as Ebert said, such a microcosm. It felt like this country in a nutshell to me and how easily we are, led astray from the important issues by middling entertainment.
0: I mean, I'm not going to disagree with the, um, the idea of assassination being both important in the film and relevant at the time in which they were making this film. And historically, everything you said, I I mean, I absolutely agree with. Um, I think as I was watching the movie, and I, I think maybe just because... I don't know how else to phrase it, but I nothing really happened, so I kind of expected something bad to happen at at the end. I I did. Well, I, I
1: I knew this film ended with a death, and I honestly I really wish I didn't know that.
0: Oh, see, and I I didn't. I I. But as we were getting closer to the end, I I kind of assumed something bad was going to happen. Um. And the, the I definitely I definitely am on the fence about the randomness of um or okay actually here's what i'll say at the time when we find out that it's actually um uh kenny the the loner guy who who kills her i was kind of on the fence as to whether or not how, how i felt about him being the one who who did it right um and then and then again just this idea of of hearing <laughs> of hearing joan Tewksbury say well, if it's gonna be if there's gonna be an assassination, it has to be Kenny because he was the nicest one in the film. Why? That's not a reason to pick your character, and and it almost works. It almost works against everything you just said about historically where we were, right? About uh, the Kennedy's and and Martin Luther King Jr. Um. Not that there were uh, how do I, how do I want to phrase this? There weren't reasons for their deaths, but the people who did it believed they had a reason for what they did, and I'm not taking I'm, that away. I'm glad. From, I'm glad you've hit on that. I, please continue,
1: because I've got something very specific that I do want to read about that.
0: Okay, um, and I'm not going to say that in in Kenny's mind that he that he didn't, but if he did, we were never made we were never made aware of that, and B. Again, and this is all this is the hindsight thing now. But like hearing Joan Tewks Perry decide, okay, if there's gonna be a death, it's gonna be him because he's the nicest one in the movie, and the audience isn't gonna expect it. I think is I kind of think that's a horseshit answer, and I really wish they would have given just a little more thought. And if they want to make it him, then 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 tell me that like the backstory for him is something, right? Like like you're the writer of the script. Tell me something. Don't tell me that it was um a, a a way of reasoning with Altman and just kind of oh okay well then we're going to come to a compromise and it's going to be this because that's just that's just that's a piss poor explanation. No, it definitely is. I I can't argue with that. And who are we to
1: argue with with Tewksbury who who wrote the script? I think I think in a in a sort of unfortunate irony the randomness of of Kenny killing Barbara Jean has has now been realized in the real world, especially with the killings of John Lennon um, and uh, the, the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. Now, when when Lennon was assassinated, and I grabbed this from Wikipedia. Altman got a call immediately, and this was his response. When John Lennon got assassinated I got a call immediately from the Washington Post and they said do you feel responsible for this and I said what do you mean responsible well I mean you're the one that predicted there would be a political assassination of a star and I said well I don't feel responsible but I said don't you feel responsible for not heeding my warning the statement here is that these people are not assassinated because of their ideas or what they do they're assassinated to draw attention to the assassin and in the political assassinations in their sort of warped minds They know that they are going to have a certain amount of people who said, that son of a bitch should have been shot because there's such heat about it. But actually what they're doing is killing somebody who's in the public eye and is some sort of icon. Because this feeling that by doing that, committing the assassination, they draw the attention to themselves and they make themselves consequentially important. It's no surprise to me, the John Lennon assassination, because this is all that is. And I don't think we've seen the end of it either. I think he had a great justification for it being Kenny based on what he said, just said there. Yes, we don't know anything about this guy. He might have a very simple, very sweet upbringing. Like I said, it sounds like maybe he's got a bit of an overbearing mother, but now he will live on in the ages as the guy that shot Barbara Jean. I think I, there's a ju- enough justification in that.
0: I, And I, I think that's a great thing that we can come to... Years later and and having just watched the film. Um and again, I I'm more I'm more pissed in the after the afterglow of it, you know, of of hearing her talk about it. In the moment I it, like it when it happened in the movie, I'm not like up in arms getting all pissy at my TV. I just I didn't like the explanation I heard later. That and, No, and, I I, all, and,
1: I like this. I love that you're taking the writer's side and I'm taking the director's side. I think that's great. I don't think that's something we've ever done on this well, show. Well,
0: I'm also, before. I'm not, I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not taking the writer's side. I I, I don't. I feel oh,
1: I feel like you have a little more sympathy for Joan Chooksbury being put in that position. Let me rephrase that.
0: Oh, no, I don't. I
1: don't at no? all. Oh, sorry. No. I, I, I'm, I'm completely misreading you there then.
0: No, 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 no. I I. I mean, I. I don't. I don't like what I. I don't like. I mean, and you. I mean, this is this is so many years after the fact. I mean, this movie is forty five years old now, right? I mean, <laughs> like, and I don't know what I. The I'm not sure when the interviews took place on the Criterion. You know, uh, all the uh, the extra stuff. But like, you've had time to think about how this movie came about and what you think about it. Give better answers. Like, even if you're fucking gonna lie, just get, tell me something better than that. Like, you're a writer. Fucking come up with something. Sorry. Woo! okay no 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 that,
1: that's hey that's that's all very valid man you're not gonna hear well there's me, just hear there's so many okay with that
0: specifically here's okay I, I i would like to i would like to say something good about this movie um yeah no please let's swing it positive and because uh, I, I think I, i'm i'm done talking about assassinations for the time being uh I, I would like to talk about my my favorite scene in the movie um and it's it's I, I I just fucking I love it to pieces, and it is it is simply when Keith Carradine sings "I'm Easy." Yes, I my favorite scene as well. Um, and it's it's not just because I really like the song, I think, and because I think it works very well at that moment. Um, but it's because it, it's also because of. The, the multitude of women who who believe that he he might be singing that song too, um, and I love that they they follow
1: their they follow his gaze they're trying to catch his eyes and then they're realizing that oh no he's not looking at me where is he looking and then they're all trying to find his gaze in the room it's so fucking well edited yeah and that's yeah. why the the editors of this film. Um, Dennis Hill. Uh, excuse me. De- yeah, Dennis Hill and Sidney Levine. They are my unsung heroes. Yeah,
0: mine too. Mine too. I have a. I have a backup. We'll get to in a second. But um. Yeah. That, is, it, so that scene... is it the
1: sound editors?
0: No. No. Although because the
1: the, the the sound department are. I can't imagine the mountain of work anybody who who worked as a sound editor on an Altman film. I just can't imagine the magnitude of work they had to do.
0: Well, and I, I think the only reason I. That maybe the the sound editors aren't aren't my winners for Unsung Hero is because like in a in a real way I think they're pretty sung because like the, they came up with the twenty four channel audio track right I mean they like they basically invented what how like in a way we could record this much audio at one time.
1: That that is true. I mean they did change the sound industry. It's what made George Lucas go. This is what Star Wars needs to sound like.
0: Yeah. Um but uh sorry, but but just yeah, but cycling back. So yeah, that scene Yes yeah staying with Caradine yeah. is is just it's just it's great. I mean, you know, and and Keith Carradine has been such a mystery throughout the movie, and it, I mean, honestly, and it's not just my pre-existing relationship with Keith Carradine and Lily Tomlin, but I do find their characters particularly interesting throughout the the course of the film. Um, I I everything... love the dynamic between Bob, Tom,
1: and Mary. Did it remind you a little bit of Inside Lou and Davis with the the sort of love triangle between uh, JT? Carrie Mulligan and and Oscar Isaac because that's that's the vibes that I was getting like I, I was the, like oh my god the the Coen brothers must be huge fans of this film because I saw like Lou Davis in those moments
0: I I can't say that I I I thought it at the moment but now that you've mentioned it I definitely can see the connection there um, yeah because I mean he is sleeping with Mary like
1: yeah. I I I also love that we don't know whether he sleeps with Shelley Duvall's character the the Alley Joan. But she's definitely trying to like weasel herself in with it. That's the other thing that I'm talking about when I talk about the the, the obsession with celebrity in this film. I love that it just and and we can continue talking about care. I think we should start to break down some of the individual characterizations, but I yeah. love the star fucker nature of LA Joan. And she's supposed to be there to visit her dying aunt, but she could fucking care less. Yeah. She just wants to get in bed with as many of these country singers as she possibly can it's something, it's, yeah. it's something I'd, a character I'd never seen and that's the other thing I appreciate about this film there are so many performances in this that I didn't expect out of these performances that I, I hadn't seen out of these actors before like Shelley Duvall and like Henry Gibson I know Henry Gibson as the sort of the bad neighbor in the burbs you know the guy that Tom Hanks thinks is you know chopping people up in his basement See- or, or the
0: Nazi in, in Blues Brothers oh see i i that's so let's see i immediately go to um the priest in wedding crashers and the guy in the bar at magnolia
1: yeah that's the that was the other one magnolia the guy that's kind of egging william h macy on i love oh man every scene he's in in magnolia is perfect
0: um but i I guess i I just but to kind of uh finish up my keith Carradine lily tomlin thing um that that scene is great but it's also what i what i love about what that scene in particular does is it sets up their scene in the hotel room where you know he's asking you know they ask about the sign for i love you and it seems really tender and then she says that that she has to go and he's on the phone immediately oh no and, she's not even dressed before he's trying to yeah. get Yes,
1: we don't we don't know who it is. It could be Mary. It could be uh, it could be La Joan. It it could be fucking anybody. He just wants somebody else in his bed. And as I'm as I'm taking my notes, I ask myself, other than than writing the song "I'm Free," which is a great song and I do think it deserved the Academy Award, I'm, and I'm, he also sorry, wrote sorry. The, the song I'm, at the end, "It Don't Worry I'm Me." Easy. Does I'm easy. does Caradine have the easiest job in this film? He just gets to lay around naked in bed all day with beautiful women.
0: Well, it, it's I do think that in terms of of shooting, it definitely was easy, and, and I and I, that's funny that you mentioned that because I definitely wanted to come back to um, uh, the fact that uh, Karen Black was only on set for a week. She got to stay at a nice hotel. She got to um, kind of come and go as she pleased. Everybody else was required to stay at the same place, and like even like like Lily Tallman talked about wanting to stay at a nicer hotel away from like all of all of the people, and he was like, "No, no, you're all staying at the See- same place." that's a genius on altman's part because
1: you know the connie white character is this sort of she doesn't seem to be sort of well regarded in amongst the community and there's definitely some animosity between her and barbara jean like barbara jean is the one who's been working as she mentions since she's a child and she's very clearly about to lose it from exhaustion in fact she does start rambling in that one opry scene yeah uh as we assume from sheer exhaustion. And I, I love that, that that must've created a sort of animosity towards her. I love when directors do little things like that when they, when they will deliberately try and create that dynamic behind the scenes as well. So it informs
0: it on set. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so my, and we, we've kind of mentioned her uh, a little bit, but my, my unsung hero, I agree with you. Is the editors, but my my backup is um, Gwen Wells because she is phenomenal the phenomenal performance. I just feel I feel so much for her. Um, somebody who just can't come to grips with the fact that her dreams are not going to come true. Just, just kind of a- oblivious and delusional, and um, there's just so. I don't know. There's just something about the way that she just can, continues on, and and I, the scene with the and I, I forget what his name is. I know I read it in the opening because I. Um,
1: oh, uh, the character's name is Wade. You talking about? Yeah, the scene Robert. Where he yeah, tells Robert. Quiet. Yeah. Um, like, come to come to Detroit with me. This town is going to eat you up and use you. Yeah,
0: it's yeah, it not, was just such a great moment. I, I mean, great by great, I mean heartbreaking. But like, I think that's and i think i think that's this, this movie is filled with great little moments like that it's just i don't think uh the whole is as great as the sum of its parts i think oh that's that's
1: that's why i'm having a hard time coming to terms with you saying that this film doesn't have a plot because it there's a there is definitely a building to that scene plot wise where where wade is telling her come with me you know we've had We've established how big a star that she wants to become, how much she worships Barbara Jean, and how much she wants to become the next Barbara Jean. And then we also have the moment, which is one of my favorite moments in the movie, is where after the striptease, where Dell takes her home, the the Ned Beatty character, and he starts coming on to her. And he has done that, I believe, because Tom has been calling Linnea the lily tomlin character and he's he's been trying to you know he's obviously infatuated with her he's trying to get her to to have an affair with him and there's a moment where Dell is on the phone at the same time and he can hear them and she says Oh put the phone down you know it's just the you know just a guy that i work with Blah 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 and after he puts the phone down i love that we linger on him like he knows and we know that he knows that, that his Ned Beatty, one of the greatest character actors of all time, it's all there on his face. And so I think that has, has come about, you know, him hitting on, on Suleen has come about because he knows in his heart that his wife is having an affair as well. So there, there are, there are strands of plot that build to sort of mini climaxes before we have the, the bigger one at the Parthenon.
0: E- Yes, but I mean, I, I guess what I mean by a plot is is the 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 driving circumstances that take us through the movie, and and like this movie isn't about Sue Lean's opportunity to sing at the Parthenon, just as much as this movie isn't about Barbara Jean's recovery from the stress of being a singer, just like this movie isn't about. Um, Michael Murphy's character, John Triplett, putting together this political rally, it's not about any of those things. And that's, again, I, I, I want to make it very clear that the lack of a plot is not the reason why I don't like this movie. It's one of the reasons why I don't like this movie. I want to make that clear. It's, no, no, it's... no, no that, that's, that's fair. I got you. <laughs> because I'm not going to sit here and say that like other movies that just kind of meander and or about people like um i don't know why this was the first movie that came to mind but like the florida project there's no plot to that movie that's just about people living at that hotel and yet and yet i find that movie captivating and maybe it's because maybe maybe i appreciate the performances more i don't know maybe it's that we talked
1: about it defoe should have got his oscar for that man yeah yeah. yes every day Um, of the week and twice on sunday
0: (laughs) (laughs) but like i I don't know and uh, so and so, I, 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 yeah. This is this is me, Adam, wanting to make his stance clear, that it's not. I don't need a plot. I just need something more. I need if you're not going to have a plot, then I need to find the other things uh, uh, more captivating. And I also want to be clear that I it's, it has nothing to do with the fact that it's country music. I don't care about that.
1: Oh no, I I think the songs in it are great. Like I mentioned, I love that the, the actors got the right in themselves. I love that it opens with that 200 years song because I mean, that's ironic at the time that they wrote it and now it's just frighteningly funny.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. We must be doing something right to last 200 years. Like, yeah, but, yeah, but have you? Do do you want, in your heart of hearts, do you honestly believe that? Do you? I mean, like I get that you do, but come on, let's, let's let's get down to brass tacks here. And so what what I'm feeling from you and again correct me if I'm wrong there isn't the there isn't the hatred that was there during apocalypse now or raging bull. I feel like you might with subsequent viewings maybe sway the other way because definitely one thing that we have to talk about and as as we talked about with Gosford Park
0: Altman films are not one-time watches. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that is definitely true. Um, so I want to be clear. I'm pretty sure I said yes on Apocalypse Now. Um, are you thinking I, of the I, Deer Hunter? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I I know you said yes on
1: Apocalypse Now, but I feel like your yes was more because of its place in history and its no, iconic. No, no, no.
0: It's I I have issues with Apocalypse Now, but I I still I the 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 the, the performances and the direction. I think a lot of the I think we raise an interesting point about like why. Why do some of the best movies have terrible um like production stories or you know and or how they came about? Um, uh, and it, it's funny, I mean because yeah, I mean, with Raging bull, it's it's gone down in my estimation after numerous watches, and that's that's where we ended up when I got to that one.
1: so yeah i, I think I think Nashville has the potential to go up in your estimation. I'm going to be hopeful, I'm going to say that I think there, there are things that with multiple viewings, you may be able to glom onto.
0: I mean, maybe, maybe what I need to do. Are you ready for this? This, this is, this is what I'm going to do. This is, this is my goal. In in 2026, when the country is reaching its 250th birthday, I'll pop on Nashville, and I'll be like, I would love to do that. What? I would,
1: I would, I think we should do that. I think we should do. uh, (laughs) uh, I'll come over. We should do a joint watch, and then I think we should record a reactionary podcast immediately afterwards. Let's pencil that
0: in. I'll get my people to talk to your people. Okay, I just, I just also want to put out that that <laughs> that six years from now, I will have a twelve-year-old and a nine-year-old. So uh, I, I'm not planning shit that far in advance. All right. Well, I'll, I'll keep it in the schedule for you. Okay.
1: Five years from now, I'm going to remind you about this.
0: Write it. Write it in pencil. Write it in pencil, please.
1: Yeah. Okay, I will do. Not so. Not in blood, then.
0: No, please, God. No.
1: Okay. Just so we're clear. So are there any other are there any other characters that you want to talk about specifically? Like we're yeah. we're talking about maybe things that could be cut. Does Jeff Goldblum need to be in this film?
0: No, absolutely not.
1: Does absolutely he add not. any kind of flavor or texture or does he add anything to the film for you? Beyond the first time I saw him and
0: I went, Hey, that's Jeff Goldblum.
1: No. Okay, that's what I thought. I'm I'm on the same page as well. He's one of those things like, yeah, we don't it I, I dig it it's kind of funny in a way the the only justification i have for keeping it in there is at the at haven hamilton's house uh at the party where elliot gould is there there's a moment where um opal the bbc reporter is on the back of the bike and she gets off and she says break a leg in the middle of a conversation that linnea is having with somebody about you know when the bike pulls up she's like oh you know as soon as that easy rider movie came out you know all these, all these guys started getting on their motorcycles and it's such a shame that the accidents are so horrific. The, the hospital wards are full of beautiful boys who are disfigured now because of motorcycle accidents. I just, I love that that conversation is interspersed with Opal getting off the bike and saying break it. There's a, there's a lot of little moments like that. There's, there's something about the, the overlapping dialogue in Altman films that I'm beginning to appreciate so much that really forces you to lean in. And you know we're not gonna do the work for you. You're gonna have to pay attention
0: if you want to catch those little gems. And and for me, that's one of them. Well, and I, you know, again giving giving the sound creditor or the sound editor some credit. You know that that whole that little that little bit that we get between Keith Carradine and Scott Glenn at the airport where he says, "How you doing, Serge You kill anybody this week?" Like, oh, that's great. And and the fact that the set the sound guys miked every you well, know everybody but you know all of the characters in the script like you know there there is a you know would we have caught that line would would that really have been something that ended up in the movie um and again not that that's that's not plot pivotal that's just i you know again where we are as a country at that moment you know yeah i got, think it's a, a very important
1: piece of texture
0: yeah oh absolutely I, I totally agree i totally agree um so i'm glad you brought up opal because in a movie where i would say and i feel like you would agree that um is is clinging to the fact that this is these this is just five days in the lives of these people a very sort of open and genuine look at the people who live here um i don't feel like the characters are are being you know crazy or abstract i feel like we're getting pretty good glimpses into these different characters the, the character of opal seems to be be really close to caricature i don't I, and i and the reason that she gets she gets really close at times and i i've known people close to that but not there just seems to be a level of pretentiousness but also obliviousness that oh I, I,
1: absolutely
0: but i i, I also don't she's and i and i get that you know she's from the bbc and she's not nashville this is not her world and that's fine but the like walking through the 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 buses like she oh also might God, be the scene. most she might be the most racist character in the
1: movie oh 100% i and I, I and that's I, what i love about her character is not obviously the racism but i love that it i love the 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 juxtaposition of that we're going to drop in this British character and not only is she going to be the most annoying and the most pretentious character in this movie where you think, Oh, all these, these stereotypes and caricatures of people in the South could be sort of grating on your nerves. But I, I, I love that. It's her. I love that. I love that. It's her. That is the character that is the one that for me anyway, was like, God damn it. I wish she wasn't in this movie. I get why she's here, but (laughs) she is a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, um, the ramblings, like you say, walking through the, the, the slight racism that's there, that sort of the, the casual British racism that's there in that scene. And then her talking about the yellow buses. Well, yellow is the color of the yellow fever and the color of carotis. No, but like, it, this needs to be more... Popular. Her back and forth about being too positive and too negative. This is absurd. And I think it also speaks to the divide between the way uh, news is reported between the U S and the UK, because later we have a moment at the beginning of the Parthenon with the, the TV screen and the news, the, the anchor talking about the, the political rally and not being able to relate with it and not being able to give the answers that Philip Walker is, is asking for. And instead he ends with, and yes, sir, Christmas has always smelled like oranges to me. You know, that divide, you know, we have the sort of obliviousness of the American news media with the pretentiousness of the the European
0: news media, although I I do gotta say, um, abolishing the Electoral College, all, four, oh, all no, for. Oh no, I'm it. I'm 100
1: with most of the things that that Hal Philip Walker was talking about. Tax the fucking rich, tax the church, tax the churches. Uh, I don't know about rewriting the national anthem. I don't know. I don't. I think that's a bit of a stretch. Where he's talking about. Does anybody even know the lyrics to it?
0: Um, well, isn't the whole thing that the that the national anthem that we sing isn't actually the entire national anthem i yeah, I believe so so i I think what's not what we don't normally say is the parts that he's probably alluding to, like do we actually know the whole thing um yeah and i yeah all those other things but i i just i know in particular i I have strong feelings about the electoral college, and I'm all for obliterating the fuck out of that, so oh, yeah, and don't even get me started on gerrymandering man, yeah, um, fuck that noise. So, so there is, there's, there's one other character that I have, um, a pretty, a pretty strong feeling about, and, um, I, I'll be curious to get your, your, uh, your take on this. Um, and it's about, it's about Ronnie Blakely as Barbara Jean. Now, it's not necessarily anything that, that, um, uh, Ronnie Blakely is doing as the character. Um, it's more about that. Kind of character, and um, during during it, so Ronnie Blakely faints after she arrives, and she's in the hospital, and then um, it's it's the next day, and she's basically trying to kind of make up an appearance, and she's she's singing, and then and then we kind of mentioned she goes off onto these rants that that aren't. You know, she's supposed to be singing and then she talks about her childhood and she talks about the whole thing about going down to the store and, you know, you'd win 25 cents if you wrote something and then she wins this contest and she gets 50 cents and that basically she's been working as a singer ever since and that um, basically her life has been so hard because she's been a famous singer uh, for it seems like a very long time both in the context of this story and in real life if you are a famous uh actor or singer or whoever who's getting paid way more than anybody else doing something that in essence you should be loving you can go fuck yourself i don't know oh, i
1: no, don't no, trust me dude i am a huge pink floyd fan I adore Pink Floyd. Almost every incarnation of the band, whether it's Sid Barrett, Roger Waters, or David Gilmour in the lead. Now, where I do have a problem is where they let Roger Waters, right in the middle of their late 70s, early 80s, get out of control. And he wrote an album, which is very, very famous, called The Wall. I don't know how familiar you are with The Wall, but it's pretty much just him whining for two hours about didn't know my daddy because he died in the war. I don't want to take anything away from that. I know that sounds insensitive, but it's <laughs> didn't know daddy, mommy didn't love me, and it is so hard being the most successful rock musician literally in the history of music. Like, that's that's all the album is about, him just fucking whining. Because at that time, they were... The, this, was bef- this was pre-Michael Jackson. The Dark Side of the Moon is still the most... one of the most successful albums of all time and has made all those guys untold millions i have no idea how much that record made but it's a fucking lot so i get where you're coming from there but i also i i do feel a slight pang of empathy for her and especially in the relationship with with the barnett her husband and manager the alan garfield character i mean i do i i see that point of view but i also do feel for i mean it yeah i get it it must be exhausting to live a life like that, even though you are surrounded by wealth and comfort and and, you know, millions of adoring fans. But I, I, I love the the back and forth between them when they're in the, the they she's there on the hospital bed, she's painting her nails, she's so disinterested with listening to what's going on at the Grand Old Opry and Connie White taking her position, whereas her husband feels like she should be grateful that Connie White stepped in. And took over for her, and the, that that back and forth. I mean, I'm glad it didn't get more violent than it did, but I felt like it was gonna degrade into that whole, you know, slapping her around and going, "No, no, no, you need to be grateful and look at what you made me do." And there's a there's a subtlety in their relationship and a, a sort of power dynamic that isn't, you know, it's not really talked about, but it is evidently there. That I, I that I did appreciate and that I did find myself having empathy for. For how Barbara Jean is to a degree being used, and so I, I, can, I, I can definitely see both sides of that.
0: I, I, and I get that they're trying to go for that interesting relationship between you know manager, but manager and and uh, an artist, and then also husband and wife. I get that, and I, I it's not that I have anything against the idea of that being in a film, but ultimately. You know what? And again, I wanted to be clear too that it's not just in this movie, but you know when I like you know when I hear that you know some singers back in rehab, you know because they they're you know they're 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 back doing pills or they're doing whatever, or you know some actors on he's you know he's he's drinking again or you know whatever. I mean, if you don't have control over your life and you're expecting sympathy from from people out there who are paying paying you to entertain them. Um, and you're going to, you're going to essentially use your own issues as the reason for why you can't do what you're going to do or that you're, you're tired. And I get, I get that, especially if like you're on tour as a, as an, as a, I'm going to put acting aside, but just, you know, if you're a musician, if you're in a band or you're a singer and you've got a grueling tour schedule, or whatever, that that can be a lot. But then again, you are making a lot of money. This is your job and two, and you're you're one of the few people in the world who get to say, Hey, I get to do what I love for a living. And there's just something about, and maybe, and this is this is the struggling actor in me too, also being like, go fuck yourself. Like, I don't want to hear that your life is so tough, and oh my God, I had to go from this movie, I had to go from this set to the next set, or I had to do this show at the you know, fucking Madison Square Garden, and now I'm doing a show at the Beacon in Boston, and oh my God, it's so hard to be performing at these awesome venues doing what I love. I mean, yeah, get some sleep. I don't know. Get some exercise. Get some fucking I, regulation uh, in your life.
1: I can't argue with the, the general idea of that. I'm, I'm 100% on board with that. And I love when I hear people like Brad Pitt say, I think he said it in one of his award acceptance speeches earlier this year, he talked about, never forget, we have the best job in the world. <laughs> so I, 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 I do think some people do take it for granted. But there are there are exceptions. And if you haven't seen uh, Love and Mercy, which is the, the Brian oh. Wilson story... Where yeah, that's that's one of those exceptions where you go, yeah, no, this this guy was was used.
0: Well, yeah, he was used, and he also had some like legit psychological. Oh, absolutely,
1: issues. and and people people took advantage of that. The Paul Giamatti character in that film, he absolutely knew that and took advantage of that. So, no, no, you're you're right, but I I don't think we should forget that there are exceptions.
0: Oh yes, sorry, yes, there are exceptions to every rule. That being no. one of them. Sorry, but,
1: I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to be facetious, but
0: no, 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 not at all, not at all. But I. I. It, but this. The example in this movie for me, I'm going. My my thought is, geez, must be tough. God, I hope you get oh, through it, yeah. Barbara Jean. And it's. And I'm not saying like, I. I don't think she should be shot. But I also don't believe that like her trauma is anything like. Fuck you. Like and that. And that's why I think. And now, now I've said all that, and that's Adam's feelings about those kind of people, like in real life. But when you play that against Suleen, that's how it works, and I get that. I think that that's that's a great, um, or Sulene or um uh, Albuquerque. Like I, I get why we have all of those characters in it. Um, I just I don't I don't like, <laughs> I don't like the Barbara
1: Jeans. Oh no no definitely I. And I, I saw an opportunity to bring up love and mercy anyway, so I was I was gonna do that because that's such a what great a, God it, and criminally wide, underrated. Yeah, not widely seen enough. I mean, a great performance from Paul Dano, who I know you're not a massive fan of, but also I think a, a sort of resurgence, a sort of return to form for for John Cusack. He he breaks my heart in that film, man. He really is going for it in a way he, that I hadn't seen him go for it in a long time. Yeah, yeah, I would agree.
0: And actually, great a great. I, a great music film year for Paul Giamatti because I'm pretty sure that was the same year as Straight of Compton.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. What a great 2 for right there. Anyway, before we move on from uh, from the Winifred slash Albuquerque character, uh, one of my favorite moments in the movie, the racetrack. <laughs> that, Where she's, I, she's up there singing. I love that that was a deliberate choice. We never hear Barbara Harris, the, the actress, playing her because she was uh, a Broadway star. Known for having a great voice. I love that Altman deliberately kept that back for the end. That oh, we yeah. never get to hear her sing until that final moment of It Don't Worry Me. Which again, man, that song just cuts straight through me. I, I said that I think I'm Easy definitely deserved the Academy Award. But I think I think that other one makes a pretty goddamn strong case for it as well. Maybe not. Maybe it's not a great song per se. But in, in the context of that scene, it it destroyed me. I was sure. sat there speechless. So, so then it's question time. Does this film belong in the book? Yes. 100%. I think this is one of the most important American films ever made.
0: Uh, My answer is no. (laughs) Um, I'm not surprised. I did try. I, I tried my hardest. I know. And you really did. And it seems like six years from now, we have a, we have a date to, to put this back on. And, and and revisit it, which is great, because you know, honestly, six years from now, we'll still probably be going through movies in the book.
1: So, well, I I really hope so. I I hope this is an experiment that's going to continue for a while, and I I can't wait to pick up the Criterion for this and and revisit it as soon as possible. It is. Hey, do you want do you want buy do you, you want buy it sale? from me? <laughs> oh yeah,
0: if you if, is it on, on <laughs> blue? Do you want to part with it? It's Blu-ray. I'll I'll give you a screaming deal. Um, All right uh so it's it's a no from me however i gave okay it wasn't just like a quick no like a like a fuck this movie no i,
1: no, and, I, want- I and
0: i i wouldn't assume so it does sound like you put some thought into it and i now, i appreciate that i i wanted to really really think about my replacement my replacement is not gosford park and it's not an altman but i i am i gotta say i'm really psyched about i have two i have two replacements and i'm actually i'm gonna let you pick okay all right. Okay. Here we go. So my first replacement is similar in terms of uh, the scope of the characters and a lot of intersecting storylines. And it's a brilliant film. It's not in the book. And in the, the, in the original um, formation of what this podcast was going to be before we, we went through the book cycle, it was going to be one of the first films we talked about. And it's not in the book. And that is Traffic. Traffic. Steven Soderbergh's two thousand uh, movie about uh, the U.S. Mexico border and and how how it deals with drugs. Um, that's uh, that's a great candidate. I believe it was in a, an earlier edition of the book. The, but the, the I, last I could have sworn it was in there. It was. It was. But the last few it hasn't been. Um, and I think that that movie is. It also says a lot about this country. Um, totally different side of things. Uh, I still think is is really important now, especially you know Trump. And I, I know that the the border wall is less of a thing that's a talking point, considering where we are right now as a country. But I just I find that really I I an endlessly fascinating movie. Great direction. Great performances. Um, I, it's
1: some of the best
0: performances
1: of the people that are. In. I still think that's among Michael Douglas's best. It's definitely Dennis Quaid's best performance. Catherine Zeta-Jones, probably her best as well. Oh, man. Don, I,
0: fuck. Ever, yeah. I, I think Don Cheadle is also really, really great. In oh, movie. he's great. And Benicio. Oh, my yeah. God. Who won? He won for it. Yes, he did. Um, So that's that's one option. I then have... Here's the thing. This, my other choice is radically different radically different the only thing that even brings it into a, a potential replacement is that it's also very musically inclined and i watched this i watched this this documentary for the second time very recently and i kind of just got i got swept up in it and my other potential replacement is stop making sense oh is that the uh
1: that's the simple minds documentary right the Talk, talking heads Talking heads, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The David Byrne. Now, I am not, and I, I won't even say that I'm a talking heads fan. Like I know their hits, but I'm not going to sit here and say that I like, I love David Byrne. I love the talking heads, but there's something about the way that it's shot and the way that you, you watch all of them interact on stage. I, I really, I, there's just something. So it draws you in. It's such a fun concert that they've, they've filmed. Um, that I, I watched it again the other day and I was like, I just, I just, I just find it really fun and, and, and now, enjoyable. Now is that, that's Jonathan Demme, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Now
1: I'm going to have to go traffic simply because I haven't seen Stop Making Sense, but I, I know it's reputation. It's definitely on my radar. Is it streaming somewhere? Yeah, it's on prime. Oh, okay. Perfect. I will, I will add that. I will add that to my list and, and bump it way up
0: and tr- and t- honestly traffic in terms of its 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 accolades and its its standing i think and 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 just it, I, I, it is an important film and i think that i'm i'm totally fine with that i just i was like i found like, i found a music one that could make sense too i was like ah i got i got
1: to put both forward so when you were talking about musical documentaries i thought maybe you were going to go with uh, 20 feet from stardom I no i haven't seen, seen that, that. That you will like that a lot, I think. It's okay. all about background, background singers. Yes. And then yeah. occasionally big stars will crop up and they'll talk about their, their love of, of and appreciation of background singers. Especially, it's great to hear it from, from Mick Jagger, who we think of as having quite the ego. It's really nice to see him be, be humble about the people in the background. And his story about recording Gimme Shelter at
0: three in the morning is, is great. Well, great. I'll have to, I'll have to watch that. Um, so there we have it. Uh, it is a, a no for me. And a yes from my good friend Ian on whether or not. A resounding yes. Nashville should be in the book. However, as always, we really want to know what you think about Nashville, so please hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you think of Nashville, what you think of Altman. Um, If you like my pick as a replacement, if you agree with Ian that this should absolutely be in the book, let us know. You can find us on Stitcher and uh, Google Play and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all those great places. Um, You can support us at patreon.com slash 1001 by one And please stick around next week. We haven't talked about a documentary in a while, and we're going to do that we're going to do a foreign one and we're going to unfortunately talk about um a a really kind of groundbreaking documentarian who is no longer with us and we will talk more about that when we get into the episode we're not there yet but until then i am adam and i am and we will see you next week